Every five minutes, someone dies while waiting for a compatible donor heart, liver, or kidney. On a remote island in Lake Superior, a team of geneticists strive to engineer an animal with human-compatible organs, thereby saving millions of lives. But these ancestors are not the docile herd animals they envision. Instead, the project spawns something big, something evil, something hungry. Ancestor by number one New York Times bestselling novelist Scott Sigler is available for free on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Lightspeed. Hello there, and welcome to the Lightspeed Magazine Story Podcast. I'm your host, Jack Kincaid. The magazine is edited by John Joseph Adams. The issue this month is once again sponsored by our friends at Orbit Books. To learn more about them, visit orbitbooks.net. Also, this month we're conducting a reader-listener survey, which we hope you'll take part in. You can find it at lightspeedmagazine.com survey. It should only take 10 to 15 minutes to complete, and one participant will receive a free one-year subscription. But don't wait too long. The survey ends July 31st. As for the podcast, the stories are produced by Skyboat Media, the most respected independent audio production team on the West Coast. They are headed by the Audi and Grammy award-winning narrator Stefan Rudnicki and Gabrielle DeCure. Post-production for Lightspeed is in association with Jim Freund. You can check out Skyboat Media's website at skyboatmedia.com. And on to the story. Our next offering for the July issue is Cancer by Ryan North. The story is read for you by Gabrielle DeCure. Ryan North is the co-editor of Machine of Death. That became the number one best-selling book on Amazon.com the day it was released, which was really nice. Its sequel, This Is How You Die, is being released this July by Grand Central Publishing. He wrote, To Be or Not To Be, That Is The Adventure, which became the number one most funded publishing project on Kickstarter, which was also really nice. His ongoing projects include writing dinosaur comics and the Adventure Time comics. They're nice too. He lives in Toronto, Canada with his wife Jen and his dog Nam Chomsky. They're the nicest of all. And so ends this week's intro. So without further ado, let's make the jump to light speed. Cancer by Ryan North. Read by Gabrielle DeCure. This certifies that Helen Frances Lawrence, sex, female, was born to John Dennison Lawrence and Virginia Matilda Lawrence on Saturday at 6.10 p.m. this 18th day of August 1990 at the Monfort Hospital in Ottawa, Ontario, and will die of cancer. Not everyone got tested at birth, and Tina hadn't. Not getting tested had been her parents' choice, but in university it had become her choice. She and Helen were hanging out in Helen's dorm room, alone, lying side by side on her bed. It was the only comfortable place in the room. Has the cancer prediction changed the way you live your life, Helen? Tina asked. Has being a lesbian changed the way you live your life? Helen asked. Has being a super bitch changed the way you live yours? They kissed for a bit. I was joking about the super bitch part, said Tina. Helen and Tina were at the mall near their house because it was Tina's 30th birthday, and she suddenly wanted to know. 
It was stupid not to, she'd decided. Helen had agreed to pay the $250 for the prediction as a birthday present. Tina pulled the credit card out of the machine, passed it back to Helen with one hand as she stuck her finger in the machine with the other. A sample was taken, her blood was analyzed, and a printout was produced. Airplane, it said. Nice, said Tina, excited. She showed her prediction to Helen. Mine's better. Airplane's way more better than cancer. You'll probably just get hit on the head by an airplane, said Helen, and it's not going to be nearly as cool as you think it is. A toy airplane, said Tina. Nope, said Helen. Tina laughed and noticed the display on the machine still read insert finger. Hey, she said, it's still going to do a reading. Quick, put your finger in. She grabbed Helen's finger and pulled it toward the machine. Helen shrugged. You want a piece of paper with cancer on it? It's yours. She put her finger in, and a few seconds later, the machine spit out a piece of paper. Tina grabbed it. A moment later, she looked up, confused. Sweetie, she said, this doesn't say cancer. It says suicide. What? said Helen, snatching the paper out of her hand and reading it herself. Suicide. She looked up at Tina, anger clouding her features. My parents told me I'd have cancer since forever, and it turns out suicide is how I'm going to die? Tina took Helen's hand in hers, trying to calm her down. Sweetie, please, come on. Maybe it's... Helen cut her off. I can't believe it, she said. Why wouldn't they tell me? I'm a grown woman, for God's sake. She already had her phone out, dialing her parents. As it was ringing, she turned to Tina. Before I do me, I'm going to kill them, she said. Helen's parents denied everything, and sincerely. Her father pulled out the birth certificate from the closet to prove it. Helen had never seen it before, but there, printed on the form, was the diagnosis. Cancer. The hospital had even attached the original prediction card with a staple. It must have been mixed up at the hospital, her father said. Some other girl's blood got tested instead of yours. It's happened before. You could sue. Helen brought the certificate home to show Tina. They were sitting on the edge of their bed, side by side. Tina turned the birth certificate and card over in her hands. Prediction cards haven't really changed much since you were born, said Tina. I've always avoided cancer, said Helen. I avoided smoking. I wore sunscreen. I limited red meat in my diet. She sighed. I really love red meat. It doesn't change anything, said Tina. Suicide doesn't necessarily mean you'll die early. Maybe it's assisted suicide when you're super old. Helen flopped backward onto the bed, staring at the ceiling. Do you want to get some dinner? She asked. It's only two, said Tina. 
Twenty minutes later, they were at a steakhouse. Helen pointed at Tina with her fork, her mouth full of steak, medium rare. Maybe I will, Sue, she said around the meat. It sounded like, Gross, said Tina. Helen and Tina found an attorney in the phone book, Jack Bradshaw, attorney at law. I only get paid when you do, his ad said. He went with Helen to personally oversee her testing, and again, suicide. Jack smiled at her. Open and shut the case, he said. That's the kind I like, said Helen. Six months later, Helen was on the stand. Her birth certificate had matched the records the hospital had submitted to the government when she was born, so it was simply a matter of running Helen through the courtroom machine. She watched from the stand as Jack continued his prosecutorial patter, building up the test for the jury. My client, who has suffered irreparable damages to her life on account of the maliciously incorrect cancer predictions supplied to her upon birth, asks for very little. Thirty years of her life, thirty years, have been spent fighting to avoid a particular death. A death, as I will prove to the court's satisfaction, that wasn't even in the cards. She asks only for compensation for those wasted years, those wasted chances, so that she might finally live what's left of her life as was originally intended. In the audience, Tina rolled her eyes, but then caught herself and stared straight ahead. Jack turned from the jury and looked at Helen. Helen, if you would now insert your finger... We will prove that the reading supplied and recorded by the doctors and staff at Montfort Hospital was wrong. Whether these people were acting with deliberate malice or not is irrelevant. All that matters is the prediction, the real prediction. Helen, if you would. Helen stuck her finger in the machine. A piece of paper was produced. Jack read it. And though Helen knew where this was going, she still thought his feigned reaction of surprise seemed... sincere? Well, would you look at that, Jack said. Despite what Mumford Hospital would have you believe, my client will not die of cancer. As you can see, ladies and gentlemen, she will die... Jack held up the card to the jury of DNA breakdown. Jack turned to Helen, making significant eye contact. I submit this prediction card, produced under the eyes of the court, as Exhibit A, and the prosecution rests. There wasn't much you could say to argue against a prediction done in a courtroom on the court's machine. The defense used their time to focus mainly on the degree of their culpability. After only a few minutes of deliberation, the jury came back. Helen had won. I don't know what you did, but you took a damn big risk doing it, 
Jack shouted at them, a few blocks from the courthouse. He was furious. His entire face was red. I don't know what happened, Helen said, but Jack spoke over her. A lesser attorney would have stumbled, would have cost you a hell of a lot of credibility. He glared at her. Why not just say you were going to die of DNA breakdown in the first place? Why fake suicide, he did air quotes around the word with his fingers, for my benefit? The other machines both said suicide, Tina said. The machines don't give different answers, snapped Jack. And at this point, I don't care. He turned back to Helen. The hospital did mess up, and we won. But for God's sake, if you're ever in a lawsuit again, don't lie to your attorney! He pushed his way past them and stormed off. Tina and Helen stared at each other. What do we do now? asked Helen. I'm three million dollars richer. Tina shrugged and after a moment turned and saw Jack walking rapidly away from them. It didn't say you were so rude in your ad, she shouted. The money had come in a lump sum, so Helen and Tina had spent the next six months on vacation, traveling the world, seeing places they'd both dreamed of visiting. There were a lot of rail trips and cruises in deference of Tina's airplane prediction, but neither of them minded. Everyone is classier on a train, Tina said. That cruise ship will go well with my dress, Helen said. They were both trying to have a good time. They'd use a machine whenever they found one that took cash and wasn't too public. They'd used 35 machines so far. Tina's prediction was always the same. Helen's wasn't. It was now the fourth day of their final cruise, a 12-day journey taking them from Australia back to Canada. They'd found a machine on board, some distance from most of the popular and interesting parts of the ship. Tina put her cash and finger into the machine. Airplane came out. Tina started feeding in bills for Helen. You're up she said. Helen put her finger in. So far on their trip, Helen had received necrosis, loss of vital fluids, apoptosis, the natural death of cells, Tina announced, reading from her phone, DNA breakdown, attack, infection, murder, acid explosion, suicide, and cancer. She'd actually gotten cancer far more often than anything else, which made her think it was blind luck that it hadn't been that prediction that turned up in the courtroom. Her prediction came out. Cancer. Tina was already feeding more bills into the machine. Once more, she said, for real this time. Helen stuck her finger in again, and again a slip of paper came out. Devoured by neighbor, Helen read, surprised. It was a new one. She passed it to Tina, who read it. Do you think that means Mr. Ross? said Tina. When they were home, Tina plotted Helen's results on a graph. The non-cancer results they got 
didn't show any trends. But cancer itself definitely seemed to be showing up less and less often. What do you think that means? asked Tina when she showed Helen her graph and data. I have no idea, Helen said in a small voice. I have no idea what any of this means. Tina took Helen's hand. Maybe we really should go to the hospital, she said. They ended up going to the same hospital that they'd sued, the same hospital she'd been born in. Helen said it'd be easier that way. After waiting in the emergency room, the doctor at Momfort Hospital introduced himself as Dr. Peters and said that he was extremely busy and that he didn't believe in Helen's story of multiple predictions. Nobody gets different results from the machine, he said. Try me, Helen said. The first result was cancer. Tina thought that'd get a reaction, but Dr. Peters apparently had no idea of Helen's history with the hospital, which was probably for the best. He ran a second test right away, and this time the result was DNA breakdown. Peters brought in another doctor, and they ran the test again. Acid explosion. They wheeled in another machine and got cancer, then necrosis, then cancer, then cancer again, then attack. The doctors all huddled in a tight circle, talking quickly and quietly. Told you, Helen said. Later that evening, Dr. Peters sat at his computer and went through Helen's blood report. When he took the sample... He told Helen and Tina that he'd be looking very carefully at it for clues as to what might be happening. He said that nothing like this happening had ever been recorded. He'd said to Helen that at this juncture, she shouldn't be taking any of her predictions too seriously just yet. That's funny, said Helen. As he brought up the first image and saw Helen's cellular walls, Peters blinked. It was obvious that Helen had lymphoma, and it was bad. The irregular shapes of the cancerous cells were spread throughout her blood. This was very far along, and likely spreading to other organs beyond the one it had started in. She'd be starting chemotherapy immediately. She was young. She could make it. He sighed, flipping through the pages of the report, pausing on another image of the flattened cancer cells. Seeing she had cancer was simple. The question was, why was she getting multiple readings? Cancer didn't come close to explaining the odd readings from the machines. Plenty of people had cancer, and plenty of people died from it, and they all had just the one single prediction. What is it in this blood that's so special? Helen's predictions were inconsistent, but not random. They seemed to be coming from a small set of possible deaths, as if the machine was seeing more than one fate for her. She's only going to die once, Peters thought. How do you reconcile cancer with being eaten by a neighbor? How does attack square with suicide and DNA breakdown? 
The only DNA breakdown he knew that could possibly be considered an attack was... Dr. Peters suddenly leaned back from his computer and stared at the ceiling, shocked, his mind racing. The only DNA breakdown that could be an attack was cellular death, induced by neighboring cells. What else do cells do? Cells die? Cells commit suicide? Infected or damaged cells are attacked and their useful elements absorbed by neighboring cells. Necrosis and apoptosis both could refer specifically to cellular death. Heck, even acid explosion could refer to lysosome-mediated apoptosis and the acid hydrolase enzymes they contained. He stared at his computer, the image of Helen's blood still on the screen. Everything fit. The machine wasn't producing cause-of-death predictions for his patient, one Helen Francis Lawrence, born August 18, 1990. It was predicting results for her cells. Tina lay on top of Helen, a full-body hug. It was dark outside, and the lights in the room had been turned off. They're eventually going to notice I'm here and kick me out, she whispered. This is the cancer ward, Helen whispered back. We get a pass. You're staying right here with me. Tina gave Helen a squeeze. Make sure there's nothing wrong with you, okay? I don't want my sweetie to leave me. Tina's voice quivered. Oh, my God, said Helen. If you start to cry, I'm going to push you off the bed. I'm serious. I will push you off the bed. I'm not crying. I was just being sincere with someone who means a lot to me and who might have a serious... Hey, stop it. You cry at TV commercials, Helen said, pulling her back into a hug. Early that morning, Dr. Peters met with his patient. He was rumpled, unshaven, and exhausted. He walked into Helen's room, surprised to find Tina already there, sitting beside her. He glanced at the clock on the wall. Visiting hours already? Uh, Helen, I'd like to speak with you privately, if I could, he said. Anything you say to me, you can say in front of her, Helen said. Tina smiled. Go for it, she said. He cleared his throat. Helen, I examined your blood sample last night. There are abnormal cells in the bloodstream, and I'm sorry. It's cancer. It's already advanced quite a bit, and the cells have metastasized and are in your bloodstream. We'll likely find some elsewhere, too. I want to begin treatment immediately. Tina squeezed Helen's hand. Helen squeezed back hard. That's the bad news. 
The good news is, we have several treatment options available, and I know we can make a dent in it. This doesn't have to be the cancer that kills you, he said, not for the first time in his career. Helen started to cry involuntarily. She angrily wiped away a tear. Fuck cancer, she said. Who's to say I don't die from that douchebag in the other bed eating me first? I... I have a theory on that, too, Dr. Peters said. I tested this last night, and it's consistent. When I put a single blood cell of yours, a healthy one, in a suspension and run it through the machine, we get cancer 100% of the time. But when I test a cancerous cell, the predictions that come out are the others that we've been seeing. Helen, they're all consistent with descriptions of cellular death. I don't yet understand how, but I believe your cancer cells are getting their own death predictions. Helen looked at Tina and then back at Dr. Peters. What? She said flatly. The months went by as Helen's treatment progressed. She had been allowed to stay at home with Tina. Her hair had fallen out. She hadn't gotten a wig. Helen came in once a day for more tests with Dr. Peters. He'd modified the machine that he'd started to think of as his with the second IV. When the machine had done its analysis, the press of a button would return the entire blood sample to Helen's bloodstream. His hope was that the cells tested in this way would reveal which treatment killed them in Helen's body. That way they could jump to using that effective treatment right away, potentially saving months of tests. So far, he'd had no luck. All the predictions were the same cellular deaths they'd been getting all along, but they still revealed quite a bit. A lack of predictions that mapped onto killed by chemotherapy told them that the treatments weren't going to be immediately effective, which was the bad news. But there was also good news, because they also hadn't had any predictions reading circulation failure or starvation or anything else that could indicate cancer cells being killed by Helen's own death. Blood cells live for about four months, Dr. Peters told Helen and Tina. We've still got time. Meanwhile, news had gotten out through the hospital staff and then to the world at large that a woman with multiple predictions was a patient. Helen had consented to one interview done at the hospital. The interview as aired had been short, since Helen couldn't really add much to the story beyond cancer sucks, were you aware? And Dr. Peters had handled the medical aspects of the explanation. After summarizing the discoveries made at Montfort, the reporter put the microphone to Helen. Do you have any idea why your experience is so different? The reporter had asked. I don't know why it's just me, Helen had said. The camera lingered on her. 
so she gave it a thumbs up. Helen's recent surgery and chemotherapy regime had not been kind. Her last chemo cycle, the sixth, was over two weeks ago, but Helen was still in hospital, bedridden, weak, and tired. She'd had growths removed from her lymph nodes and bowels, and daily radiation targeted at the growth around her heart. Tina visited her almost every day, telling her stories about what their friends were up to when they weren't there in the room with them. Her parents had visited five times. It was hard for everyone, and at Helen's insistence, Tina was home today. You still have to live your life, she said. Go have fun. Eat something I can't keep down. I insist. Steak, said Tina. No way, those belong to me, said Helen. Helen was alone and napping when Dr. Peters knocked on the door and wheeled his machine in. The knock was enough to wake her. Back for more, Nick? Helen asked. Still looking for clues, yes, said Dr. Peters, hooking her up to the machine's IV. Place your finger here, please, Helen. A few seconds later, the result was printed. As Dr. Peters read the slip of paper, his heart sank. It wasn't cancer, so it was a cellular-level prediction, the end of the line for a single cell of Helen's cancer. He stared at it for a long moment. Host death, it read. Helen saw his reaction and asked for the paper, reading it quickly. Well, fuck everything about that, said Helen, handing it back to her doctor. Six weeks later, the host's death predictions had eclipsed all of Helen's death predictions, with the exception of cancer. It was going faster than they'd expected. Tina hadn't seen Helen and Dr. Peters produce a non-cancer or host-death prediction in days. The cancerous cells in her body were not going to live for much longer, and everyone knew that meant Helen was not going to live for much longer either. There was no way to avoid it. Dr. Peters was still no closer to figuring out how to stop it, and given the numerous host-death predictions, they'd agreed to move Helen to the palliative care unit three floors up. There, the focus was no longer on curing the disease, but on managing it, on making Helen as comfortable as possible for what little time she had left. The end of the chemo and radiation treatments meant that even though Helen was dying, she felt better than she had in weeks, maybe months. Tina and Helen spent a lot of time talking, and a lot of time just sitting and not talking. They'd agreed to not start thinking that since there were only so many moments left, every moment had to be capital S special. That would be exhausting. This was nice. Helen placed her finger into the machine, and Dr. Peters took another reading. You're doing great, Helen, he said. Nick, Helen said, if you're waiting to cure me, 
Now would be a good time. Tina looked at her and smiled. A few seconds later, the machine printed out a piece of paper, and Tina read it, furrowing her brow. She held it up for Dr. Peters. Destroyed in lab accident, she said. Dr. Peters quickly disassembled the machine and recovered the blood sample within. Inside that sample was a cell of Helen's cancer that was going to die not from host death, but in the lab. This cell would survive her body. But how? The 120-day window of cell life didn't give them much time. He put the blood sample into a sympathetic culture designed for maintaining cells. If I didn't do that, he thought, would the cell have died from host death instead? Am I destined to knock this Petri dish off a desk in a week and that'll be that? Ah, uh, it didn't matter. At this point, he was willing to try anything. Two days later, it was clear that cellular division was taking place. All cancer was a mutation of a cell's regular instructions, causing the growths and lumps normally symptomatic of the disease. But Helen's cancer cells had mutated differently. Unlike normal human blood cells, Helen's reproduced in culture. They cloned themselves and would clone themselves for as long as the necessary conditions for life were present. These cancer cells can be sustained indefinitely, Dr. Peters said that afternoon while briefing his colleagues. Ladies and gentlemen, we're looking at the first immortalized cell line descended from human DNA. His audience had been amazed and everyone wanted a sample to examine for themselves. At least one of those cells would be killed accidentally, but the rest? Who could say? He'd already separated them into separate cultures, and, after his presentation, had received permission to move some to another hospital nearby, just to be safe. The precautions were necessary. For all intents and purposes, Helen's cancer cells were a new form of single-cellular life. The fact that her cells finally reproduced provided an explanation for why the machine was treating the cancer as something different from Helen. Biologically, the cells were distinct, and they didn't need Helen to survive. All they needed was the food they took from their environment— and whether that was Helen's bloodstream or a Petri dish didn't really make a difference. Dr. Peters met with Helen shortly after his presentation. Tina was there, too, as always. He explained what he'd discovered about her cancer, about the cells that had developed inside her body. When he was finished, Helen was silent for a long moment. Hey! Who's got immortalized cells and wants a Coke? said Helen, surprisingly upbeat. Dr. Peters looked at her confused. Helen raised her hand. Me, 
she said. Three days later, Dr. Peters came to Helen and Tina with a question. Tina had been reading to her. Helen had spent a bad night unable to sleep and was feeling weaker than she usually did. Helen, I may not be able to cure your cancer, he said. Yep, said Helen. But the predictions we're getting from your cell cultures may help us cure all cancers, he said. Helen blinked. Dr. Peters had finally caught her without something to say. The predictions we got from your cells when they were in your body, Helen, were mainly predicated on how long you'd live. But in a culture, we don't have that limitation, and the predictions we're getting back are different. Tests on cell cultures we've cultivated have returned results like lab test or experiment. But one last night said, killed by C29H32O13. That's a chemotherapy drug, Helen. That's the precise chemical formula for the atopicide phosphate, one of the drugs we're already using in treatments. Clearly, at some point in the near future, that drug will be introduced to part of that culture, and it'll be effective. So you can verify drug effectiveness a little sooner, asked Tina. Oh, it's more than that. We can test treatments extremely efficiently, giving slight variants to different cultures and not having to gamble a human life in the process. We can produce new drugs by brute force alone, running experiments that would otherwise kill a human host. We could have thousands of researchers working in parallel, each cell a new experiment. And it's not just cancer. We can infect some cultures with other diseases and use the same process to discover treatments targeting them as well. Your cells may well unlock a new age in medicine, allowing unprecedented progress to take place. But the cells are yours. They belong to you. We need your permission to develop them further. Helen and Tina stared at the doctor as he rushed through his speech. It's a lot to take in, said Dr. Peters. No, I get it, said Helen, turning her head to look out the window. Outside, spring was turning into summer. Helen felt Tina squeeze her hand. She turned back to her doctor. Twenty years later, Tina was in her living room, relaxing, reading in the Saturday morning sunlight. The magazine she'd bought had a feature on the cover. The Miracle of Helen Lawrence's Cells, it said with a science fiction illustration of a blood cell, all blue and orange with multiple tiny labels. It said that thanks to the great potential of Helen's cells, 
Strains were stored and used in labs the world over. It's said that the achievements and advancements made through what scientists called the Hella cell line included new treatments for a variety of cancers, fundamental research in gene mapping, along with many other scientific pursuits. It's said that millions were alive today who had Helen's cells to thank. Tina smiled. It was a pretty good legacy, she had to admit. Beside the article, there was a sidebar with more facts on the cell line. It said that the biomass of Hella cells cultures propagated over the last 20 years would now exceed Helen's actual weight several times over. She looked over the magazine to her picture of Helen, resting on the mantel. Gross, she told the picture. Author's Note Don't freak out, but there are actually immortal cell lines in real life. In the 1970s, a line was established with cells taken from a 14-year-old boy with leukemia. And in the 1950s, the very first human immortal cell line was established with real-life Hella cells, taken from the cervical cancer of one Henrietta Lacks, a 31-year-old woman living in Maryland. The researcher who took the cells, George Guy, never informed Henrietta, who died shortly thereafter and also kept the existence of the cells a secret from her husband and children. This is what's known as a dick move. Her family only found this out later, after decades of groundbreaking science and medicine, when other researchers, hoping to learn more about the cell line, contacted them with questions about their genetics. Craziest of all, the achievements credited in this story to my fictional Hella cells can be attributed to Henrietta's real-life cellular culture. But after a half-century of her body being used, and profited from, without her consent, it seemed inappropriate to use Henrietta's name in my story, and further inappropriate not to credit her immortal cells as the inspiration for Helen's ones here. Henrietta's grave finally got a headstone in 2010. It reads, in part, in loving memory of a phenomenal woman, wife and mother, who touched the lives of many. Welcome back. I hope you enjoyed the tale. If so, and if you find the time, please go to our website at lightspeedmagazine.com and leave a comment. Just click on Fiction, find this story, and then leave a comment there. Or if you'd like to help spread the word, go to iTunes, find the Lightspeed Magazine Story Podcast, and leave a review or rating there. And if you haven't already subscribed to Lightspeed Magazine, please take a moment to consider it and check out our many options at lightspeedmagazine.com slash subscribe. The stories are produced by Skyboat Road Company, Inc., which is spearheaded by the Audi and Grammy Award-winning narrator Stefan Rutnicki and in association with Jim Freund. 
We also hope you'll check out Lightspeed Year One, a collection of audio stories from this podcast's first Hugo-nominated year. Look for it at audible.com. And that's all for now. Thanks for listening. Cheers from all of us at Lightspeed Magazine. Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it, or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Bartha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz. And how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts.